morning, everyone, again. <laughs> um, I just want to pray um, as we open God's word together. Um, Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that um, it is living and active um, and that by your spirit you, um, you illuminate it to us. Um, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds, that we may see and hear from you. Um, Father, we pray that, um, Lord, whatever it is this morning that, that we are carrying, Lord, the things that may be on our hearts and minds that are distracting to us or feel really important right now, um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit these things to you. Um, Father, I pray that we would not be weighed down or troubled by, by things that, um, that we can hand to you. Um, so, Father, I pray for us this morning. I pray that you would help us to focus, to concentrate, and I pray that there would be no stray words, um, but, Father, that every word that is spoken would be honoring to you, pleasing to you. In your name, amen. Okay, so before Easter, which was feels like really not that long ago, but it kind of does feel like it. I don't know how time is working at the moment. But anyway, before Easter, um, we walked through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, yeah, which recounts like what they call kind of prehistory. Um, now, faithful Christians over the, the centuries um, have had different ideas about how long ago it was and what time period it refers to and all of that. But there are some really important messages that come through from those first 11 chapters, right? And the ones that are loud and clear that God created the whole universe and all that it contains, and it was very good. Um, and that there was peace and there was abundance, there was, you know, good and rich relationship. Um, but that was broken when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And from that time on, we see two distinct groups of people, right? There are the people who follow God and the people who don't follow God. And we see the destructive fruit of, of sin um, and the constant and the consistent failure um, and inability of people to keep following God or to want to follow God, even those people who it seems have been marked out, singled out to actually be those followers of God. But what we see revealing itself in these early chapters is God's heart and God's plan to actually bring people and all of creation back to peace and to abundance by bringing them back to himself. And so from Genesis 12, um, the focus of God's plan for redemption um, narrows to this one man and his family, the man Abram, who is, a, he, he's a, a pagan, right? He's somebody who doesn't follow God, um, but God calls him um, to receive a blessing of, of becoming a nation, of becoming um, famous and of living under the protection of God the, and a promise to be a blessing 
to all the nations. He calls this man to come and follow him. And when Abram is called, he answers that call in obedience. And so he leaves the security and the comfort of family relationships to go where he does not know, (laughs) Um, just to wherever it is that God shows him. And he goes in faith. He goes to Canaan and he builds altars and he worships God as he moves through the promised land of Canaan that God has shown him. And so, you know, the first nine verses of Genesis 12 are, are really hopeful, right? It starts off really well for nine verses, <laughs> which, you know, it's not that much in, in the scheme of things. In verse 10, Abram hits a time of famine. And instead of remaining in the promised land, instead of asking God, God, what should I do? Where should I go? He leaves and he makes his way to Egypt. Now, Egypt, um, as, as Pastor Phil told us a couple of weeks ago, Egypt made a lot of sense, right? It was a big city. It was the biggest in those days um, where there was a much greater chance of food and security and stability. And so in the first test of Abraham's faithfulness to God, he turns to the world's superpowers. And then he does an even more despicable thing. He puts his wife, Sarai, in jeopardy. He uses her beauty as a shield for himself. And she is taken into Pharaoh's harem and Abram is treated well for her sake, which was what he wanted. And in that story, rather than Abram being that blessing to the nations that God said that he should be, he becomes a curse to the nations. Because God sends plagues on Pharaoh and his household to protect Sarai. And it, in the end, it's the Egyptian, the Pharaoh, who is the one who acts righteously, who is the one who actually speaks God's words to Abram. And he sends them away. Abram and Sarai and Lot and all of their household leave Egypt because Pharaoh orders them out. And that's where we find ourselves now in chapter 13. They are journeying out of Egypt and they are going back to Canaan, the promised land, with a lot of livestock. And now Abram is faced with another test. All right, so this morning we're looking at chapter 13. I know we only read a short portion of it, but if you have your Bibles with you, it would help if you opened it up. So Abram is faced with another test. The first had been about what he would do in famine. And this next is what he will do when there is an overabundance. There's way too much. And sitting in the background now is this question also. What has happened with the covenant, the agreement that God made with Abram? Now, it might be in the background for us because we just see like, oh, there was a famine and then now, you know, they've got all this stuff. 
but it's actually front and center for Abram. Because if you look in the first few verses of chapter 13 and you see what he is doing, he is retracing his steps and renewing his worship of God at the altars that he built to God before he went to Egypt. And if you want to compare that, you can go back to Genesis 12, just a few, it's just a little bit up, um, verses 6 to 9. And so Abram is showing us, like, kind of geographically, (laughs) um, that he wants to come back to God. But it's not only in his geography that he shows us this. He also shows it in the way that he now chooses to treat his close family. So where he had been willing before, and even almost eager to sacrifice his wife for his comfort, he now renounces his rights as head of the family and allows his nephew, Lot, to choose whatever land he wants for the sake of peace within the family, of well-being within the family. Now, in this story, both Abram and Lot are faced with that problem okay, of we have too much. So previously, both Abram and Lot went to Egypt for security in the famine. They were aligned. Now in this story, their actions show different hearts. And so their paths deviate. There is a separation that happens. And for Lot, his path leads towards curse and destruction. And for Abram, his path leads toward blessing and abundance. Each each man, we're going to go through, each man looks, each man sees, and each man pitches his tent somewhere in in this story. So we're going to look at Lot first, who ended up moving towards curse and destruction. And I'm going to read from verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, and sinning greatly against the Lord. So people who are better with maps and directions than me have figured out that when Abram offers the land to the left or to the right, he refers to land that is to the north and to the south of where they are. But Lot doesn't look to the north or to the south. He looks to the east which maybe you're like, why? Who cares? <laughs> it's, a, it's a compass point. Uh, but what we actually find consistently, fairly consistently in the Bible, is that going to the east is paired with moving away from God. So when Adam and Eve, for instance, are banished from the Garden of Eden, they are sent 
to the east. After Cain murders Abel, he goes to the east. And so the fact that Lot was looking to the east and ends up going to the east tells us something about the way that he was looking. We compare Lot's look with the way that Eve looked at the forbidden fruit. He looks with eyes and a heart that seek to take something that is not for him to take. And when Lot looks, he sees the whole plain of the Jordan. But he doesn't just see geographical features, right? It's flat there and there's like, no. Um, He sees the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt, both at once, with no distinction between them. Now, the garden of the Lord is Eden, right? That's the last place where God dwelt with humans, where God's presence was. It was the temple, a meeting point between heaven and earth. That's Eden, the garden of the Lord. And Egypt represents the strength of humans. It's one of the great cities that was built where people are dishonoring God. They're following idols and other, other deities. And for the Israelites who are hearing this, Egypt is the place where God's people were enslaved. But Lot cannot tell the difference between these two places. He looks out on this wonderful, fertile plain of the Jordan, and to him, both Eden and Egypt are the same and fitting comparison for that land. See, Lot's problem here is that he is looking at the blessing itself, right? So he is looking at the wealth, at the abundance, the security that would be there. And he is mistaking it for the giver of that blessing, right? For the presence of God that results in blessing. So he is looking at the good things that come from God and he is chasing those things as though they are God. Now, when Moses writes this down, we haven't actually come to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah yet, but they are so well known that even before the story is told in Genesis, Moses expects the reader to know all about it, that it was destroyed. And so he tells us at this time, it was actually still there, that's why you know he could go there. And he also tells us that the people of Sodom were wicked. So whilst Lot doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference between Eden and Egypt, the way he sets up his tent, the way he decides, the place he decides to live out his life, indicates that he was probably also very aware of the wickedness in Sodom. Because he doesn't go and live in the city. He lives near the city. Or Hebrew actually says that he, he pitched his tents towards Sodom. So he isn't just nearby. There's implied a kind of movement or a yearning towards Sodom and all that it could offer him. So Lot is looking for something that isn't for him. 
and his judgment is completely off because what he sees is a confused image of both Eden and Egypt. And then Lot pitches his tent in the direction his heart is already going towards Sodom. The land he chooses is somewhere on the edge of the promised land that God promised to Abram. It's either just inside or just outside it, but it's on the edge. So Lot is playing a dangerous game here. He's been traveling with Abram, and I'd be very surprised if he didn't have some quite significant understanding of God and the promises that he's made to Abram. But what Lot seems to want to do is to be able to take the blessing and control it and still share in the promises of God. That's why he's camping on the edge. He sees what people have been able to do with the good things of God, and he wants to be able to have those things too. But not so much that he loses his place in God's family and misses out on what God has as well. I mean, this has been a problem for people, the people of God, from, from the beginning until now. We lift up our eyes and we look around us and we see all sorts of good things, good experiences, good people who seem to live good, easy, fun lives, and we want that too. Um, when I first started working a while ago, I, I saw my colleagues, okay, um, most of whom were older than me because I started working pretty young, um, and they were living lives of, of what I thought was fun and independence. It looked to me like they were living their best lives, and I wanted that too. Now, I couldn't fully participate in their lifestyle um, because I was 17, um, and I was still living at home with my family and studying and not really earning all that much. But... I started to change what I could. So my spending habits started to change or were formed, really. That was the first time I'd really had money to spend. You know, I, I showed what I valued by, you know, the things that I would like to eat, the restaurants I would like to go to, the types of clothes that I would want to wear and buy. Um, and I started not only attending the, the Friday night drinks that, you know, often happens in offices. But even at 17, participating in the drinking that was happening there. I also became more closed off and more dismissive towards my parents. But I still attended church. And I tried to hide parts of my life that I thought, were, like I, I knew really, were unacceptable to Christians around me. Parts of my life that I didn't want to be called out on. Just kept it quiet. And I told myself that I was only doing a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a little bit. And that everyone else is doing it anyway. And it's just like normal life. Like, come on, everybody lives this way, so it's fine. And I told myself that if I didn't participate in that life, that I wouldn't fit in with my colleagues that I wouldn't be able to get the promotions and like kind of, you know, rise up through the ranks of the company. Um, and everyone would just really basically just think I'm a bit strange for not going along with what everyone's doing. 
but actually I really wasn't ever fully comfortable with what I was doing. Um, even though I justified it to myself. I tried to make myself okay with it. In this time of life, and this is not the only time of life or the only situation like this, but my heart was towards Sodom, towards the, the things that I saw as good things that I wanted. In a similar way to not to Lot, I knew the promises of God, but somehow the promises of of the life that I thought my colleagues had and kind of held out to me were more real than the promises of God. And that's a really difficult thing, hey? Like the things and the people and, and the experiences we have in this life, they just feel so real. Yeah, you can, you can see them, you can touch them, you can taste and hear and smell. You know, the, the fun that you can have is like it's now or maybe it's next week. You know, it's, it's proximate. It's, it's like right there. Um, you know, if, if, if you're living in a, you know, looking for a nice house or a good car, you know, those, those things are solid, right? They, you can actually go inside them and like, you know, if you, if you <laughs> like to do this, like drive fast or get places, whatever it is, you can do it. It's in your control. You know, you can go to a friend and have a a conversation and then, like, you know, if you're feeling sad, you know, give him a hug and you can feel that hug. You can eat that fancy food. You can go to that Insta-worthy place and take the photos and put them on Instagram and it's all real because it was on Instagram. But it seems like life could be so good. And you can work to get to that life. You can build it up for yourself. You know, you can set goals and achieve them and do all of that. But in the process of setting our hearts on things that are not God, we are changed. Our hearts are changed. And we become blind and unable to distinguish, as Lot did, between Eden and Egypt. And so, you know, we may think that what we actually really want and need is is to be successful at work, and that is what we're aiming for, because that is the good thing that God has given us. He has given us work, and work is a good thing. But if we've confused Eden for Egypt, we might feel that actually it's justified to play the political game at work. It's justified to be just a little dishonest in the way that we present ourselves or present our work or acknowledge somebody else. It's okay to hide our failures at work because we don't want that to, you know, spoil, um, you know, potential pay increase or whatever it is. It's okay to pass the blame onto somebody else unfairly or not speak up on behalf of someone else. You know, if we, if we confuse Eden for Egypt in our relationships, you know, that say we're, a lot of us are looking for that significant other, right? The person that we're going to spend the rest of our lives with and it's going to be grand. Um, if, we confu- if we think, right, I, I want to get married, 
I want to have this person that's going to complete me and it's going to be amazing and we're going to love each other and support each other. But that's not happening. And we're in that search for that person. But we've confused Egypt for Eden. What can we do? We might start looking for that person outside of the family of God. We might justify it to ourselves and say, well, I can't, I, I can't find anybody, like it doesn't seem like there's anybody suitable amongst, you know, the Christians in my circle. So I, there's this interesting person at work, though, or within my, you know, family, friends or whatever, and they, they seem pretty good and we get along well. And surely, surely God wants this good thing in my life. Surely he does, and I'm just going to help him along. And so if we, if we mix up Eden for Egypt, we, we might go down that path and justify for our, to ourselves why we have taken that decision. You can do it in, in all sorts of good things in life. It can be at school and the way that you treat, you know, the way that you need to get good marks or the way that you want to have friends or fit in or find acceptance. These are good things to have friends, to do well in your studies, good things. But they are not Eden. They are not God or where God is. And when all we aim for and long for are the good things that we can get here, we miss them, actually. It it may take us a while for us to realize that we're not actually going to be able to grasp them, but it'll happen. And when we look at the trajectory of Lot's life outside of these verses that we're looking at today, even though Lot is saved from the destruction of Sodom, where he ended up moving to, everything that he worked so hard for was literally burned up. That was a bit bleak. Now, Abram. <laughs> Let, let's see. Let's see what Abram does as he moves towards blessing and God's abundance. So I'm reading from verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, from I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great tree of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now Abram looks, when does he, he looks when God asks him to look, right? And this looking is a look of obedience. It's, it's a heart that seeks to follow God. And when Abram looks, he sees what God shows him. He doesn't see with his own eyes. He sees the promise of God. For the first time, 
Abram sees the fullness of the land that God has promised to him. And Abram does not go anywhere else. He stays in that promise. He pitches his tent in the land that God promised to him. And the place, this is, uh, yeah, the place where he pitches his tent, right here at the great trees of Mamre near Hebron, is where he will raise his family and eventually where he will buy a plot of land to bury Sarah. And he and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob will all be buried there. It's the plot of land that is the placeholder for the fullness of God's promise. Abram saying, God, I know you're going to come through on this. You are going to come through. And so I am staking my family here to this ground that you have promised. What Abram saw here, what he looked out to, was more than just mountains and trees and valleys. It's more than just those geographical features. He saw the promise of God. It was a promise that wasn't yet fulfilled. And he saw with eyes not only of obedience but of faith that the God who made those promises would come through and keep them. I mean, there are obstacles here. We're told this land was not empty. There are people living in this land. And he was just one household. And in his one household, he didn't even have any children. Now, as we will see in the next um, chapter, it's, it, was a, it was a big household. <coughs> but the promise of the whole land, not to mention the promise of so many descendants that they would be like the dust of the earth, that is a really hard promise to grab hold of and to believe. It's hard to hold on to when it seems so unlikely and so vast. But what does it really mean to look with the eyes of faith? I will finish soon. Now, this is in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, and even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were the heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. So looking with eyes of faith and seeing the promises of God involves more than just staring. It means that Abram acted on the promises of God. He lived his life in a way that was consistent with the hope that he had. Abram had to go where God asked him to go. He had to make his home in the land that God promised. He had to leave behind the family that he had grown up in. It wasn't an easy journey. He became a stranger in a land that he did not know. But instead of looking as Lot did at a good and fertile land somewhere else, Abram chose to live out his faith in God's promises by pitching his tent and making his home in the land that God promised. 
Now the promises of God become more real and more substantial than the stuff and things that we can find for ourselves, right? And even more real than the good things that God gives us. But how? (laughs) How do they become more real? Abram looked forward to a city whose foundations and architect and builder is God. Abram hung on to that hope. He knew what it was in a way. And I wonder what the hope is that we hold on to. Is it that hope? Is it the hope and promise of fullness of life in the presence of God? Now, as we finish up, I just want to say, sorry, I've had to skip through. Abram took a very sharp turn away from God. And we don't know all of his thoughts, but we see his actions, right, in coming back to God. He went back to the places where he had worshipped God, where he had met God, and he worshipped again. And so I want to ask you, each of us, have you turned away to one side? Are you heading east away from God as Lot was? Are you trying to handle your promises, your sorry, your problems and your blessings your own way? You can go back and retrace your steps. And maybe that involves reconciling relationships. Maybe it means stopping something that you know isn't right and making those things right. Maybe it means confessing and accepting the consequences, whatever they may be, and seeking help. Now, Abram is an excellent human example to us, particularly in this story because he repents. But he doesn't always do the right thing. But look at what God does, right? God is there when, when Abram wants to go back to him. He is the father waiting for the prodigal son to return. But when we fall and we know that we will, We don't need to give up on the promise that one day we will see with perfect, obedient sight and have new hearts that will never turn away from God because Jesus lived perfectly where none of us could. As Hebrews continues in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus looked at every temptation and eventually at the cup of wrath and he drank it for us at the cross With eyes of perfect faith, he saw ahead to the glorious day when he would know his true joy, which was us. We are his joy, and he endured it all, and this is how much we are valued. This is how precious we are to him. 
And in times when it is hard and when we see that there is this promise but it doesn't look like it's being fulfilled and it's just tough going, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus as the one who walks through those times that test us, with us. When we feel weary and heavy and when we can't believe that this is what is happening right now. It's hard, but it would be impossible without friends to encourage and pray for, for each of us together and for the one Jesus who has gone ahead. It's as I am reminded of his love for me displayed in his blood and brokenness, in his descent into humble dirt and weariness of life. It is as the Holy Spirit swells my heart with the presence and love of God that that is what becomes the most real, the most tangible thing in my life. So we look at the example of those who have gone before and those who stand around us now. But most of all, we fix our eyes on Jesus because he has fixed his eyes on us. Let's pray. Our Father, we just want to thank you so much for your grace, for your open arms that welcome us into your presence. We pray, Lord, I want to pray for each person here, for those who feel like they are weary, who don't understand the situation they're in now, who feel lost. I pray, Lord, that you would bring people of faith around them to lift them up to you. And that they would fix their eyes on you and by your spirit you would minister to them. And I pray, Lord, for those who have, who are heading towards the east, who are moving away from you, who have their hearts set on things that are not you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them the strength and courage by your spirit, the rebuke even, to come back to you, to retrace their steps and worship you once again. In your name we pray. Amen.